This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and today I'm talking with Charlie Hunter. Charlie is a pioneer of the hybrid guitar, which is a six, seven, or eight string instrument combining some strings in the bass range and some in the guitar range. His career has spanned three decades and 20 albums as a leader, and the list of drummers he's played with over that time includes Questlove, Matt Chamberlain, Stanton Moore, and Bernard Purdy, and some former guests of this podcast, including Carter McLean, Derek Phillips, and Doug Belote, and many, many more. The drums were Charlie's first instrument, so his connection with drumming and drummers runs very deep, as you'll hear. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Working Drummer Podcast on your platform of choice. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to help support what we do here, we invite you to become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer, and a donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive educational content from our former guests. Think of this as professional development for drummers. Sometimes it's playing bass, sometimes it's a musical concept or a business tip, but it's all useful and actionable for the working pro. We're populating new content regularly, and as little as $1 a month gets you access to all of it. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can also make a one-time donation through PayPal. There are links to both on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. I had a great time hanging with Charlie. He had some simple, elegant takes on some big ideas when it comes to how we make our way in music, partly on the business front, partly on the technical front, but mostly in terms of the process of carving out an identity and the journey of self-realization that we are all on. So please dig Charlie Hunter. One of my Atlanta buddies uh, is is you know basically the reason I got more hip to you, and that's uh, Kelly McCarty. Oh, Kelly's the man, isn't dude. he? Yeah, that dude is he's bad, man. Yeah, yeah, I love playing with him, love hanging with him. Um, but uh, but yeah, he was um, you know before before I started hanging out with Kelly, I was sort of you know peripherally aware of you and what you did. Um, and, and Kelly got me a lot more hip to you and, and it was with him that I went and saw you live the first time at, um, red light cafe. Um, Oh yeah. And, uh, until then, like I, you know, I, I, I had a misconception about what it was you did. I went in expecting sort of like fusion noodling. I don't know why oh, wow. I, I have no idea why I expected that. I couldn't do that even if I wanted to. <laughs> I couldn't couldn't actually execute it. But it was it was I was so just like pleasantly su- surprised and blown away at how groove driven and rootsy and bluesy uh, and greasy what you do is. Um, so for for people who oh, thanks, you know th- yeah of course for people who might not be familiar with your music and what you do and the instrument you play just describe it in in a minute 
Oh, I mean, I usually tell people, just go on YouTube, God damn it. God, no. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, you know, honestly, it when I started out, I was, you know, uh, it takes longer, maybe not longer than a minute, but, you know, when I started out, of course, I played, drums was actually my first instrument. And then because I came from a guitar family and in a guitar town, I put, ended up playing guitar, played a lot of bass. And at one point, I got into really into Tuck Andrews and Joe Pass, people that were doing all that counterpoint stuff. Right. And Joe Pass's case, super swinging and very, you know, lots of tunes. And in Tuck Andrews's case, really arranged and really funky, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and from there, I, I, you know, I had this guy, Ralph Novak, build me this seven string that was basically like what you would call a George Van Epps tuning, which is six string guitar with a low A on it. And I played that for a while. I had a group with Dave Ellis and Jay Lane, tenor and drums, respectively. And, um, you know, I probably made their lives hard because I was just learning it. You know? Right, right. And, of course, it was there was a big jazz aspect of it and trying to, like you said, play as much shit as you possibly can. Um, but still, everything was still rooted in the blues and soul and, and groove music, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and then I had this eight string made by Ralph. It, this is like 1994, 95, and, which was basically like a lower three strings of a bass and higher five of a guitar. And it was, yeah, people would assume, oh, it's going to be lots of chops. And, and a few records I made on Blue Note had to be very chopsy. But ultimately now I've cycled through a bunch of different little different iterations of the instrument and now i'm playing this thing i call a big six which is kind of like i tune tune it differently depending sometimes the lowest string will be f sometimes f sharp sometimes g but it always follows the same uh like the lower three strings of a bass and like adg of a guitar mm -hmm. whether it's up a half step a whole step or a minor third just depends on what i have going on um and it's and it's the and you know and what i realized ultimately is like look this thing ain't gonna get any medals for playing lots of super intricate noodle wheedle noodle wheedle like really that kind <laughs> of stuff. I'm gonna have to leave that to my friends who are really good at it. The thing this has the potential to do is to really get a nice groove and be like the hub in a in a wheel. Right. You know what I mean in terms of when you're playing the music and and then when I get with a really great drummer. It's really, that's when it's at its best, kind of. Yeah, yeah. You know, basically what this amounts to is you're, you're playing um, bass lines and chord comping and melodies at the same time. And I don't, I mean, I, I think you're the first to do this in the way that you do it. But um, from what you've posted and, and, and things I've read that you said, this sort of technique and this idea is, is really rooted in uh basically the the piedmont blues am i right a lot of it is oddly enough um i mean it's a big and and i'm glad you say that it's definitely a big um kind of a circ circular i took a circular path you know cuz that was a lot of the music that i grew up with that my mom had um that she played and she plays guitar and she knows um some of those styles pretty well mm -hmm. um and uh you know she came up in that whole greenwich village scene in the in the early 60s right right uh and um so that was the music that was on around the house but of course you know i didn't want to hear that i was embarrassed for that i wanted to listen to the cool shit on the radio which then was in oakland was kdia so soul music and then 
all I had all these weird friends that liked me like all kinds of music and I got into rockabilly because it was nifty guitar playing and yeah yeah I was playing like electric blues stuff but not like like really blue because because I don't think my mom would have had me um like she had the bb king records and the albert king records too so that was the first thing I heard right but then of course in the 90s, it became really important. In the late 80s, it became important to to really develop this whole jazz vocabulary and really be able to just play lots of shit. That was that was <laughs> what the that was the currency of the time. Right, right. And I was playing with lots of people who went to music school, which I didn't do. So I always feel felt like I was constantly having to up my game. And the stuff that was really natural to me was not at a premium. Grooving in the 90s was not at a premium. Right. Um, playing the blues, really playing the blues, like deep blues, not like blues, like B-L-O-O-Z. <laughs> but you know what I mean? That was not at a premium either. You know what I mean? None of that stuff. Well, you you had to get up there and you had to show people that you could play a bunch of shit. Right, you know? right. Uh, and same, I, same went I did, for drums, I think. Absolutely. It yeah. was the same thing. And I did my best. Um but, you know, it was not really an era that put me in the best light. Um, but the thing about what I do now or what I feel is more natural to me um, is it's also not something that's going to get you uh, a massive amount of, of like, woo, 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 because it's very covert. It's very much like trying to learn how to be a pocket drummer, which right. is what I also try to do. Right. You know? Oh, you are. Trust me. <laughs> oh, I appreciate it. Thank yeah, you. yeah. Um, but it's interesting what what you say about um, sort of you know what what you're made of, the kind of musician you are, and how sometimes you find yourself in a <clears throat> in an era or in a place where that doesn't hold a lot of currency. Um, and and I like the idea of just kind of riding that out, doing doing what you can until you find yourself in an era or a place where like what you're made of, um, you know, is a little more, uh, well received. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting you say that. And I'm not, I don't really listen to his music or didn't, I only knew the couple of the hits he had. Um, but the guy, John Cougar Mellencamp was being interviewed by someone. And I, I was in the car, I just was happening to listen to it. And it was real interesting because what he said really resonated with me in that way. He was like, look, I was just an old-fashioned songwriter. I just wanted to write songs, country songs, uh, interesting pop songs, real building kind of stuff. Like, that was what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Well, when I came around in the 80s, it was like, no, here's the box that you have to operate in. You know, and he's like, okay, so this is the sound we have. And, oh, okay, well, so be it. Right. And, and you know, and he writes the a couple hits, and, and that's kind of what he's known for. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of the, your, your technique on, on your instrument, I mean, it's, it's, it's cool that you started out on drums and I want to hear more about that, but like, it's, it's a three part approach, right? You got bass, you got chords, you got melody. So I would imagine that your start as a drummer, your background as a drummer, um, you know, just like an, you know, making the obvious, uh, analogy to kick snare hi-hat the way three parts can just interlock, um, and Kelly actually told me like when he was, you know, he was taking lessons with you, I think, and he was starting to get serious about it. And you were like, all right, go learn drums. <laughs> that was part of his like yeah. you know, seven string or eight string training that, that you put him through, which is just like start playing some drums, figure that out. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I agree entirely with you. And I, I mean, 
it's interesting. The other part of it is I don't really think of it in terms of three parts. And I'm sure in the way you don't think of Kick Snare Hat as three parts, right? Right. Because you get to a point where everyone's like, oh, independence, independence, independence. And then you're like, well, wait a minute. Interdependence. Right. That's infinitely more important. If you hear somebody like Clyde Stubblefield or even, you know, someone like Hal Blaine or Earl Palmer and the way they're putting these beats together. Yeah. You're not going to get three people to play those individual parts and make it feel like that ever. So, yeah, you have kind of three different focuses of of what you're playing. But, of course, a lot of it, and I play enough drums to be a danger to everybody else. You know? <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of it. A lot of it is, you know, it's like one of those people, they learn enough karate to hurt somebody accidentally. <laughs> right, you know right, I mean? right. <laughs> uh, but, um, but, you know, I know enough on the drums to, to understand, to bring to my instrument that, you know, you're dealing with stickings and all of this stuff that you can put in between these instruments. Um, but, yeah, man, it's the same thing. I mean, there was a time when I was really... Of course, when I was starting out, I was like, I'm going to show these motherfuckers how much shit I can play at once. Damn it. I'm going to really I'm going to really play this shit. But really what ends up happening is you try to play shit um, and you get a little too opportunistic. And drummers do this, too, where you'll sacrifice a really big part of the music to get one little thing. Yep. It's like a, it's everything. It's a balance. And then when you go for that thing, it's out of balance. And so. You know, if, if I'm playing a groove that's like boom, if you have a bass line that's boom, to boom, 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 Well, if I play that on my guitar, on my instrument, what ends up happening is there's a kind of thing that happens with the balancing, right? So it's like two scales. You have your bass part and your guitar part, sort of. I think of it in that way. And the more shit you put on the bass side, the less shit you put on the guitar side and vice versa. Yeah. So you're always trying to work this thing. But, you know, there's a lot of things you do with, um, you know, li- like you can play linear grooves on my instrument in the same way you play a linear groove on the drums. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and it's exciting. You can instead of boom, instead of boom, 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 you can play boom, 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 the guitar boom, and so they're intersecting, right? And you leave space, and you leave space to to do all of these awesome little gestures, so you can keep the landscape really, really open, and you don't have to always be kind of flooding the zone yeah. with shots. Right. You can wait and take your shot and and make it. Right, you know? right, right. I, as I'm thinking about your playing, I, like what you're describing is is you know if you you know if you take something that you've played, like something you put on Instagram or whatever, um, I think you know the the whole uh, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Like there are you know there are guitar notes, there are bass notes that are sort of alluded to, but but not actually fully fleshed out, right? Yeah, sometimes, and, yeah. And I think that you can do the same thing on the drums. Like um, like you said, not filling up every space, but filling up some of the space so that it just occupies this sort of um, uh, effect in, in the mind of the listener, you know? But if you yeah. really break it down, there's not actually as much going on there as you think. Yeah, it's it's very true. And, and it also 
you know, a lot of times if you're hearing a lot of drum stuff with a lot of ghost notes, mm-hmm. um, and even like, you know, if you listen to a lot of the old Jamerson bass parts, there's a lot of ghost notes in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to use that. I just try to think of things in terms of, okay, what do I want to play because I'm a douche and what should I play because it's better for the music, right? So I'm like, okay, step back, step back. You don't right. need to be up in, up in everyone's face yelling real loudly at them. You can step back and, and hopefully it works, you know. Um, and it also really, I've been very lucky to play with great, great drummers and have my ass kicked constantly by them. Right, so. right. Let's let's get to them. A a partial list of the drummers that you've played with um, includes uh, actually many drummers who have been on our our podcast. But I like I just made a quick list, uh, and I'm looking at Scott Amendola, Derek Phillips, Stanton Moore, Carter McLean, Doug Belote, Jordan Rose, Questlove, and 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 um, Mike Clark, yeah. Bernard Purdy, Idris Muhammad. Uh, um, George Slepic, uh, and, um, uh, from back in the day, Eddie Marshall, great mm-hmm. Bay area jazz drummer. I don't know if you know, know of him. I got to play with him a few times. Uh, I mean, dude, I played, I, and I'm leaving people out and I'm feeling like an asshole for, for doing it. But, um, Eric Kalb, you know, Eric. Oh Kalb yeah. We interviewed him uh, a couple months ago. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, Jay Lane, of course, but when I had my first group, that guy is one of the funkiest MFs ever. You know? <laughs> so is is there something? Um, oh, and Leon Parker. Leon oh, Parker. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, man, yeah. And Adam Cruz, too. <laughs> it, I've been lucky, man. Yeah. I've been lucky. Yeah, well, they've been lucky, too. Um, is, is there, I mean, obviously, all of those drummers are very different in a lot of ways, but is there a quality uh, that that all of those drummers that you love have in common? Oh, and and I also should say, really, one of my kind of my mentor, Bobby Previtt, but he's so much more than a drummer, but he's one hell of a drummer as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have to say, everyone they all have, 
you know, their own thing in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I don't think everyone is, uh, the right person for every gig. I certainly am not, mm-hmm. you know, um, there are certain drummers that I play with in certain, certain kind of situations that would play fine in other situations, but probably are not, um, aesthetically, probably they wouldn't be that into it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, every one of those people has their own special thing. And I think, you know, you, there's no real monolithic thing, you know, like, um, you should be able to get with somebody and play some music somehow, meet them halfway and figure out a way to play, you know? Um, that's such I'm a sure simple, if, that's such a simple statement, but I don't like, I don't know if I've ever heard it put that way. Cause we talk all the time about how you can like, you know, interlock with different bass players and how the vibe is like this with that guy and with this, like this group and, and whatever. But yeah, you know, it, it, it I, I love, I love that you just said like, as a musician, you should just be able to get in a room with people and play (laughs) and i mean you know we have i think especially when we're younger especially when i was younger i had a monolithic mentality about that motherfucker can't swing or that motherfucker can't play the blah 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 or man yeah i don't know his second line blah 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 it's like guess what bitch you kind of suck at a bunch of stuff too (laughs) here's the thing but here's the thing you're also good at some stuff and and work on that keep working on that eventually get better at the stuff you suck on and when you play with these people don't get hung up on the fact that they don't sound like the other person you want to play with. Yeah. Cause you're totally missing everything that they can offer. Right. And, and you're shutting them down and not affirming the time they took to follow their rabbit down the rabbit hole and learn all the stuff that's important to them. Honestly, man, I think a big part of that is, is really, you know, being a musician is such a, it's just so fraught with with the the terror, and I think as honestly, especially drummers, it's so fraught with the terror of like, how do I work? How do I get people to to hire me? Mm-hmm. How how what do I get known for? You know, you come on the scene and you think you're Bill Stewart, but there's just one Bill Stewart, right? You know, and and um, and so you you end up being like, well. Maybe that's not, then you get hired by a bunch of people and you're like, well, damn, I really like playing this kind of music. This, I didn't know I could play Cajun music. Yeah. I didn't know I liked this so much. Or man, how am I in this reggae band? I'm the only non-Jamaican guy in this band. I love this. This is who I am. You know, you figure all those things out. Like, you know, we're talking about, you know, um, uh, not everybody can be the person that's, it's, I, I know I'm getting really circular here, but it's a corporate construct mm. and we buy it. A mm. lot of us buy it because the margin, this is not the 1970s mm-hmm. where ev- there's a chance for everyone. There, there's this, there's this time where the margins of being able to make a living, they get slimmer and slimmer and slimmer and slimmer and slimmer, you know? And, and I think it's especially hard on drummers because drummers for most people are the easiest people to fuck with because <laughs> They're doing no because they they are doing to the to the, a singer who maybe is, does not have maybe they have a great vision but they're not really a musician um, and they don't un- really understand music. A drummer is doing what seems to be the most obvious thing to people. So if there's a problem, it's always the drummer that's the problem, right? You know, and um, you know, I, I think that. 
the time it's taken for me to really learn, like, wait a minute. When I play with Mike Clark, I'm fucking playing with Mike Clark. I'm not going to be up there like, how come you don't play more like Adam Cruz? Right. And I'm going to be like, damn, you're Mike Clark. This is a, a this is a damn, uh, this is a, a, a mitzvah just to get to play with you. You know what <laughs> right. I mean? Yeah, yeah. And then, and then when I'm playing with Scott Amendola, we have a vibe like, and we come from very different places, but somehow we have this weird vibe. We get together, we make cool music. You yeah, know, if yeah. I'm playing, if I'm playing with Bobby Previtt, I'm like, man, this guy is, is like a compositional and improvisational genius. I'm going to ho- put my seatbelt on and be along for the ride. And, and then if I'm playing with someone that I just, started playing with i'm like okay who who is this person what do they do this is great okay let me figure out what they do and mm-hmm. and i, I don't want to fight them i don't want to put them into into a box you right know? i mean even someone you think of like matt chamberlain who's who everyone knows this is this brilliant studio drummer um is a killer improviser and we've had a few gigs together where we just sat and improvised mm-hmm and I was just like, damn, that was fun, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that's... You know, so even someone... Sorry, let me just finish. Yeah, even yeah. someone like Matt Chamberlain, who everyone assumes is like, oh, he's going to go in there and he's going to do all these records. He's going to give the producer what they want. It's going to be X, Y, Z, blah, 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 blah. Matt has a thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think that's one of the reasons he is such a successful studio drummer is because it, it seems like it sounds like his process is very improvisational. I don't think he's sitting there with like a spreadsheet and, you know, I'm going to play this here and that here. It just feels very <laughs> organic. Um, you know, he's it, he's kind of on an exploration with every song he does to find cool sounds and, and cool grooves. And it doesn't it doesn't sound or feel prescriptive. It just sounds very open and improvised in the moment yeah 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 i think probably that's what people like about it yeah and it's it's funny you mentioned bill stewart because i I spent a large chunk of my 20s just like worshiping at the altar of bill stewart and basically being a bill stewart clone but i had to go through that process that you talk about about figuring out like well that isn't really how i sound as much as i love it like that you know that influence is a part of me but i have to grow beyond it take it with me but you know become more of myself and less of (laughs) a bill stewart clone sure man but it's just you know the thing the other thing about it is it's just all about you know it's a corny thing but we are all on the same path it just depends upon which part of the path you're on Mm -hmm. some people feel like well i got to get off at this exit and spend a lot of time in this cul-de-sac checking it all out right um you get back on, you continue on your path after having, you know, acquired that knowledge and you're kind of on to the next thing, you know? Um, but it, but that's how, that's how we do it, you Mm -hmm. know? And there's so much incredible knowledge and, and important information in what he does. I mean, dude, my guitar teacher, when I was a kid was Joe Satriani, you know, (laughs) he was, he's the guy in my town who taught guitar and he was a great teacher and actually had an amazing wealth of music to impart mm-hmm. that isn't just what he does he has a lot of different stuff to impart um and you know it's just it's i i was listening to um my friends you know uh steve wolf who's a great drummer and ash Sohn were having like one of those instagram kind of chats and i just kind of hung out and listened to what they were talking about and, mm-hmm. and they said something really cool that i can't remember whether ash said it or wolf said it but it was basically like you know, you're comprised of 
five people, four or five people that really you really listen to a lot mm-hmm. that seeped into what you do and and whatever you play is some kind of an amalgam of of those four or five people. Yeah, you know, I believe that. I I'm I'm just thinking about my four or five right now, uh, <laughs> and they're yeah, not. Who, I mean, they're not always the people that you would list on like your, your list of favorites, you know, um, or uh, yeah. So like I, you know, I would say, uh, Bill Stewart, Peter Erskine, I mean, Neil Peart has to be in there, like it or not. Uh, of course, you know, and, um, I don't know, like probably Vinnie Paul or somebody <laughs> like that, you know, I don't know who that is. He was the drummer for Pantera. Okay, cool. Um, but that, but again, look, man, that's your that's the route that you took. Right. Right. That's Everyone what I spent the most time. Route. That's what I spent the most time listening to. Right. That's what made its way into my ears and my brain and my hands on the most regular basis. Um, so regardless of who my favorite drummers are today or who I'm influenced by today, like those, those deep rooted things, like you said, those four or five things, I think kind of get, get rooted there kind of early. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think you're right. And, you know, the thing is, not everyone is, you don't get to pick your upbringing and you don't get to pick any of that stuff. Right. You, you're going, it's, you just get thrown into it and you have to figure out the path that you take from one thing to another. I mean, most of the people that, you know, were my age at that time really were into Dave Weckl. They went through this big Dave Weckl thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, and then they were embarrassed for having gone through the Dave Weckl thing. I'm just like, Fuck that! Yeah. Why are you Why are you embarrassed? He's a bad motherfucker. Yeah. And the the stuff that he plays, he plays the living shit out of. You're not gonna find anyone that's gonna play Dave Weckl better than Dave Weckl. Yeah. And guess what? What a great thing to learn in terms of learning the mechanics of how to play the damn drum set, dude. So I just interviewed Dave like two weeks ago. Oh, uh, get out of here! And uh, you know, he was he was never one of my guys, um, but especially in sort of like doing some research, preparing for this interview. I watched new stuff. I watched old stuff. And like you said, I mean, Weckl is a specific thing, right? It's a specific aesthetic. But I realized the same thing that that you were saying, just like, holy shit. Like, who... Who does this better? He's he's Michael Jordan, you know? And LeBron James does not play like Michael Jordan. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah. But... But, uh, yeah, in terms of the mechanics, the vocabulary, the flow, the, uh, I mean, whether, whether you're into that aesthetic or not, there's just so much to learn from it and you, you just have to give it up (laughs) for the guy. Right. Oh yeah, man. Totally. Like I would love to play with him at some point. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be able to keep up probably. I would just have to play like a two bar ostinato (laughs) and let him do his thing, but I would, I would enjoy it. Right. You know? In the same way I enjoy, I've played with a lot of completely free musicians, and I love that too, you Mm -hmm. know. I'll play with Johnny Vidakovich when I'm down in New Orleans, and he goes in between the most free shit you've ever heard to the deepest street beat. And, and dude, I mean, that's to me is, uh, I don't need much more than that. I mean, that makes me happy, you know. Right, right. Um, I also liked what you said about sort of um, crowding the music with content. and as someone who has done so much duo playing, um, I wanted to ask you about this because I had an experience 
I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago when I lived in Kansas City, um, for a while, a, a keyboardist buddy of mine and I did a duo gig. It's just, just like a steakhouse thing. Um, mm-hmm. And they had he was playing like a baby grand with his right. And he had a, a, you know, a Nord up there where he did left hand bass. And when we first started doing this gig, I was playing all the notes. I was like, man, there's only two of us. There's so much more space. Yeah. I can just I can run free, man. And after a couple yeah. of gigs, he he was like, could you just play like simpler uh, and, and I was like, well, I, sorry. Like I thought there was, you know, only two of us. I had more room and he was like, I get that. But like, I'm doing double duty over here. Like I'm forced to simplify my playing. Yeah. And if you, yeah. if you go the opposite way, then we are clashing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, even more than clashing, you're, um, you're canceling out right. shit. And when there's only two of you playing, you need every little sound you make to have uh, a moment to be a gesture and and to be to be important, you know. And the other thing is, you know, when the less instruments you have, the less musicians you have, the more the larger the sonic landscape, the potential sonic landscape gets, because think about a ride cymbal, a ride cymbal, you're playing a ride cymbal and all of a sudden it's an incredible sound, right? Mm-hmm. If you really know how to play a ride cymbal, then you get in a band with tenor player and a trumpet, and a lot of your ride cymbal disappears in their tonality. Mm-hmm. And or an organ player, it starts to disappear, right? Um, when it's just you and your drum kit, nothing is absorbing anything, right? Yeah. So it's 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 every note, every instrument you play every every move you make every gesture on on each instrument has a lot more weight to it Mm -hmm. so you can play a lot more simply and in in when you have a duo or something you have to play more simply because nothing will have any impact if if you don't right you know because it's just all about using the negative space in that situation and whoever you're playing with he was at or she was absolutely right about how uh you know you got to save that space you know right. cuz otherwise it, it, it all you're doing is you're just in a room with water all the way up to the top and you're like I can't breathe I can't breathe I can't breathe <laughs> right right so and as as I'm thinking about it you know a lot of the drummers that that we've mentioned here that you've played with um know how to use that negative space and um and I would say a lot of them they they all have such a unique sound and such a unique approach, but not much of that sound and that approach is content based. I feel like it's more uh, more about touch and tones, um, and not necessarily sort of like signature licks or signature grooves. Maybe with the exception of Purdy, um, right? But um, but yeah, that it it kind of it kind of struck me about all these drummers that like i i can't really point to a whole lot of like licks that they're famous for i can just think of an aesthetic that they're known for right and and that's what yeah i mean we all have our licks we yeah. all have our little licks that we play kids just can't get away from that um because maybe you want to hear it you like it you know right but um yeah man i think that it really comes down to you know someone's concept within the greater kind of music, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, 
I mean, somebody like Steve Jordan is thinking about the record he's producing and playing on at the same time. And I was lucky enough to play with him a little bit, which was an incredible experience, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so he's thinking his goal is like, this is all about this song. How do I make gestures within this three minutes that create, uh, you know, orchestration with it, within it. Right. You know? Um, and I played, I did one gig with Booker T. It was a weird gig and, and, um, but it was really fun. And I, and I really asked him a lot about all that stacked stuff and in Al Jackson in particular. Yeah. I said, man, you know, there's some th times where almost never plays the ride symbol, but you'll have like one crash in a song or you'll have, and he goes, oh yeah, all that stuff. He, he orchestrated all that stuff. It wasn't just, he just decided to play that. It goes, no, that had a big, there was a reason for every one of those things that, that he did, you know? Yeah. And then, you know, you, you play with somebody like Bobby Previtt. And if I, if you guys haven't seen him, uh, your listeners, I encourage them to go on YouTube and watch maybe some solo stuff, um, of his, it's just all about, um, I mean, he gives like this one week long lecture on imp improvisation, mm -hmm. you know, and the stuff that he gets into is so deep and so beyond licks that it's, it's heavy, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's, it's amazing to, to get out of the, the lick mentality. And I, I wish I was able to do it more often than I am. But, uh, I think, you know, s sort of freeing, freeing yourself from the lick mentality allows you to go to one of two really cool ways, either just straight groove, straight pocket, or, totally free, like total safe space, you know, improvisation. Um, and when I think about it, those, those are the two most rewarding spaces that I play in. Like if I get into the lick headspace, it's just never as awesome as I think it's going to be the second before I do it. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's a thing. Um, and people have, to, I just look at it as it's just more, it's just more shit, you know, in your spice cupboard to have. You're, right. You're not going to. I don't know if it's even a spice. Good. I think it's like high fructose corn syrup or MSG. High or <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, MSG and high fructose corn syrup. Yeah, you know. it's it's delicious, um, but it's not good. <laughs> yeah, exactly, you know. And I mean, it also has to do with like appropriate, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think there's, it's, as when we're younger, it's easier to demonize certain kinds of music. Um, and you see that throughout, of course, throughout history, um, all music goes back to Africa, every single damn note, whether you mm -hmm. like it or not. Mm -hmm. I like it personally, yeah. but, um, it all does. And, you know, you'll see these things through time of people trying to demonize this. Oh, he plays too much or, oh, I don't like that beat or I don't like this or, oh, it's not intellectual enough right. for me. You know, you hear that a lot with a lot of European people, like if, you know, they're not, they're a few more paces removed from rhythm than um, new world people are, mm -hmm. you know, Brazilians or people from the States, you know, we're much closer. We have a much deeper relationship to rhythm because it's more of an integral part of our lives. So that governs a lot of how we hear music. Whereas Europeans, most of them, I would say, I mean, this is going to be messed up because they're incredible European drummers obviously that guy benny greb i think is fantastic oh, god what a mutant 
Yeah, this kid, <laughs> this this kid I play with in Holland, this guy Neek De Brown, who's damn good. There's a lot of great musicians over there. I'm not saying they ain't got it, but you know the they're more interested in you know if you go there, you're someone like me, and you're just playing a groove and some blues. They're, they're not going to be that interested in that. Mm-hmm. They want to hear more uh, because they come from that classical world. They want to hear your your you know, your exposition and your, right. They want to hear some poetry. (laughs) They want to hear, well, yeah, maybe not always, maybe some poetry, um, except in Ireland, those motherfuckers (laughs) naturally clap on two and four. I'll tell you that. Oh, I love it. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But, um, but really, you know, it's, 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 you don't need to demonize any of it. It it, it can all be good. And it's not, you know, there's a, a lot of that music maybe, it doesn't, it's not for me. Mm-hmm. And, but that's okay. It's not for me right now. I don't know everything, man. In 10 years, I, I might, maybe I'll grow. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, hopefully that's the goal. Lord, as I lay me down, I only hope I'll still be around. Woo-hoo, I got so much more to do. I pray that I'll be done uh, a few projects with uh, a few amazing singers uh, including Lucy Woodward and and Kurt Elling. By the way, the stuff you're putting up on Instagram with Kurt is fucking gold. It's so good. <laughs> it is so Thanks, good. Man. And it's it's generous of you guys to just like put it out there, let drummers hop on. I've hopped onto a few. It's been a blast. Um I, I love watching you guys together, but oh, the, thanks. He's a man. That guy is that guy is a really one of a kind. He is a musician. Just scary talent, unreal. Yeah, um, yeah. So I don't think I don't think I could make my I could make my guitar as out of tune as humanly possible, and he would still be in tune. Yep. yep. <laughs> just yeah, unreal. Um, and it's it's so cool to hear him like. Uh, in a in in a much different context because until I heard what he was doing with you, um, he's he's like in you know in his it, most of his time is devoted to like hardcore jazz vocalist world just like he will you know oh, yeah. he will cut a tenor player he'll go in hard uh, on he's bad yeah he's so dope yeah but the stuff he's doing with you is like blues soul funk you know all this all this kind of great great stuff. Um, and the, the, the drummer, uh, that worked with you both with, um, Kurt and Lucy is, is Derek Phillips, our buddy in Nashville. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, talk about negative space, like talk about just, (laughs) just pocket all the way. Um, was, was that an intentional choice for the singer projects as far as Derek? In some ways, I mean, we just have a relationship. We go back really far. We go back to the Bay Area. I mean, he's, I think Derek's about seven or eight years younger than me. And he hung out with a group of people that I used to kind of see out of the corner of my eye, you know? Right. And 
And he moved to New York, he and his wife, when they had their first kid, I think. Um, and uh, he's the only person I know who's played. I don't think you can find anyone who's played with Greg Osby and uh, Hank Williams Jr. I don't think that I don't <laughs> think it's possible. And everybody in between. Yeah. Um, and the thing about Derek that's really special, well, he's got a great feel and a great uh, great time feel, but he just wants to make whatever music he's playing, he wants to figure out a way that he can use his tools to make it the best possible experience mm-hmm. for everybody. And then I think ultimately the best possible experience for him too. And it's not, there's nothing, there is not an ounce of... Um, kind of you know he what's what's a, there there's no disingenuousness at all in it mm-hmm. it's for real so he's he'll bring the same amount of care to a Vijay Iyer gig as he will to that Brett Eldridge gig mm-hmm. you know what i mean and and um and that's what and it's in many ways you know he's a lot like I mean, he probably wouldn't like me to say this, but he's a lot like a throwback drummer. He's a lot like someone like Earl Palmer or Hal Blaine. Yeah. Where you can really see them, or Jim Keltner even, you see them playing with anybody, any kind of music. And Carter is also is kind of like that as well. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. It, it, it speaks to, you know, the kind of, um, the kind of musician he is and, and I think the, the kind of musician that we should all strive to be because... I, you know, there there are musicians who who say, um, how how can this music be a vehicle for me, right? And and that's not right. always that's not always an entirely you know uh, selfish or sinister impulse, but like they you know they they want to get on the racetrack and and <laughs> drive their car, you know. Sure, um, sure. But then you know the other side is the musician that says, how can I be a vehicle for this music? Um, and I've, you know, I've definitely been guilty of, of the former on a number of occasions. And I think everybody has, but, um, we all have, yeah, yeah. Just, you know, hearing, hearing, um, the way you talk about Derek and the way, uh, he plays, you know, in, in those projects is just a, a great reminder of like, you know, be a vehicle. How can you be a vehicle for the music? How can you figure out, uh, how to make it work? Yeah, sure. And, and I mean, sometimes for me, a lot of times I don't have what it takes to play certain music. I'm not going to be good at it. You know what I mean? (laughs) I mean, look, man, I always tell people like, look, if you want, if you need someone to play a bunch of Charlie Parker tunes and okay, I can do it. I can do it. Mm Mm-hmm. It's not going to be the best you've ever heard. Some, it's not even close. But I'll get through the gig. You won't be embarrassed, too embarrassed. It'll be okay. <laughs> right. But I would say, I, I would, I would recommend a hundred people before me mm-hmm. to do that, mm-hmm. unless you had some special weird take on it that made sense with my whatever weird shit I have is, you know. Right. Um, and sometimes I would have to bow out of stuff because I'm just like, dudes. I'm just going to make your music sound shitty. You know, I just don't have what you need for, for your music, you know? Right. And then other times I'm like, yeah, I'm the, I know, I know how to do this. Right. This, this, this is right. my blood type. 
Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like as as we get older as as musicians, we we get better and better at finding that balance about you know knowing. Um, you know, on, on the one hand, being completely open and being willing to do whatever we got to do to make the music feel good. On the other hand, knowing our limitations and just knowing what is not in our wheelhouse and, yeah. and saying so, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I always tell people that, especially the younger people, like, because I really wish that somebody had told me that. But maybe they did, and I was just too much of an arrogant hothead to to listen, mm-hmm. you know. But, um, you know, when you get in a group of 20-somethings, especially the younger ones, let's say they're in a music school situation, there always seems to be an overriding culture of music that they are, quote, supposed to be listening to, and quote, supposed to like, because this music is the, re- quote, the real shit. And other stuff is not the real shit. Right. So, and, and usually I find that that music is the real shit in many ways. I mean, in, I think in my era, I didn't go to music school. But in my era, people were really into people like Dave Wackon. People were really, all the horn players like Michael Brecker. Right. And But, I, you know, when you listen to Michael Brecker, yeah, nobody sounds like him. You might have all listened to him, but you missed some really important shit, the most important aspects of what he was doing. Right. And I mean, I'm taking a little weird of kind of tangent here with this, but all of it to say that you need to understand that whatever your natural inclination is um, might not be cool. It might not be cool for 22-year-old boys. Right. Like, it, it, you might, your thing might be, uh, you know, figuring out how to play cumbia music and really existing in that world. Your thing might be fucking writing tunes like Karen Carpenter did. Yeah. You know, your thing might not be as uh, playing music at all. You might have a whole other path that mm-hmm. you take. And I've known some badass musicians who don't kind of play music anymore. Yeah. You know, it was too constricting for them. Right. You know, right. I also think that especially when it comes to drummers, um, we're, we're told from day one, you got to learn everything. You got to learn every style. You got to, you got to be able to play with any kind of band that calls your phone. Um, right. and, and I get that instinct, but I think, uh, a lot of drummers are robbed, um, of the opportunity to, to really go deep on something and like figure out their identity from an early age because they're too busy trying to get kind of good at 11 different things. Right. And you, you hit the nail on the head because also there's this, this whole kind of fallacy, I think that people bought. Um, and I think it has a lot to do with this kind of like music education, industrial complex, you know, <laughs> and, and, and it's really unfair because, and it also has to do with the fact that, you know, people in their twenties and thirties have access to every damn thing ever recorded most of it on video. They go on YouTube. They learn everything slowed down. It's, it is an entirely different process, you know, and I do not begrudge them that because that's their reality. Um, I think that people in my generation, you know, we had a tape player and, and if we wanted to learn something, we didn't get to go online to even read anything about it. Right. If we didn't know somebody who knew something about it. That was it. That's all she wrote. You right. Know? But we had in our area, the, our era, the thing that you guys didn't have is we had opportunities. Mm-hmm. You see, we had these 1970s, 1980s opportunities. Even a guy like me, when I was in the Bay Area, I was okay. Um, 
there were a lot of people who were a lot better than me, but there were so many gigs that somebody like me could could just play gigs all the time and yeah. get better. And then learn, which really, if you're going to be a performer, the only way to learn is performing every damn night and and playing with all kinds of different people all the time, mm-hmm. figuring it out in, in that way. And I think what ends up happening is you guys are sold a bill of goods because you're taught this whole curriculum that in many ways is the idea of it, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbows. You're being taught these 1950s through 1980s kind of, uh, you know, lessons, but there's no 1950s to 1980s opportunities to go with that information. Right. So you jump out and you're like, well, wait a minute. Okay. So now there's all this shit. I'm, I'm some kid from, you know, uh, you know, St. Paul, Minnesota or, you know, New Orleans or, or Accra, Ghana or Berlin or Tokyo, Japan. And I, all of those people are supposed to learn how to play, um, like Steve Jordan, like Bill Stewart, like the Tony Allen, like, uh, you know, um, deep play really perfect, uh, you know, clave based music and play all the Brazilian shit as well. Right. In addition to playing all of the odd time signature stuff, in addition to be able to play open handed as well, in addition to be able to, 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 you know, uh, throw your drum set up in the air and juggle it, you know, in addition to be able to get every gig, everyone calls for and being able to read through a big band chart perfectly. And then, and then timpani, timpani and marimba and, and all, (laughs) yeah. Give me a break. It's so, I mean, that's such a waste of time. Man. I hate to say it. Is and, and and it's also unfair because it's a supply and demand thing, right? It's that whole Adam Smith thing, right? It's like right. you don't have okay. So where are all these gigs? Right. Tell me. Tell me who's going to fucking call you up? Those gigs don't exist. Right. Those gigs, dude. There, there's not enough gigs for a lot of these people. You know. Yeah. About that yeah. you listen to. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. So, so I'm sub- the idea is I'm supposed to be chasing this ridiculous rainbow that it's this goalposts that are constantly being moved. At this point, it's just like, man, you're better off if you like Art Ensemble of Chicago or if you like Milford Graves or Tony Oxley, you're better just immersing yourself in that shit and going full hog on that and owning that shit yeah. and creating your own universe because you actually – the fucked up thing is you actually have more of a chance of being successful doing that yep. than you do trying to play every damn thing. Because what you start to realize, what I start to realize is when I'm touring around, maybe my, my thing is as messed up and there's the, and, and what I do has little eccentricities in it and it's not always perfect and it's this and that. But man, when I'm touring, I see all these bands, hundreds of them and hundreds of these young players and they're all, I don't want to say they're all sound the same because that's an ignorant old guy thing to say. <laughs> I'd like to say, I'd like to say that they're all trying to do the same thing mm-hmm. in, in their careers and they're losing so much of themselves and they're negating so much of what they have to offer and whatever their special voices, they're tamping that down to kind of follow this aesthetic like, um, you're going to be a dentist or a lawyer or something, you know, right. it doesn't work that way, man. Right. You're, you're hitting close to the bone because I, I am, <laughs> I am a product of the, the music education industrial complex. I went mm. to college and grad school and the whole thing. 
And, and I'm super ambivalent about it because I, I share so many of the, uh, you know, opinions you, you just expressed about, um, how it's a, a rarefied atmosphere that doesn't have a whole lot to do with, you know, actually making real music out in the real world for most people. Um, you know, it, it, it stretched me as a musician. There were things I learned in that atmosphere that I could not and would not have learned otherwise, but at the same time, I, I think it did deprive me of some of the self-realization and self-actualization that could have started at an earlier age had I not bought into, um, you know, like you said, you just got to learn this, 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 and that, and that, and that, and that, because this is the real shit. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't, I wasn't really encouraged to, find or explore my own voice, my own passion. And I don't know if I was given that opportunity, if I would have even been capable of it because I didn't have a really strong sense of my own identity as, you know, a late teen, early twenties. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I think that more musicians are, um, you know, starting that process of sort of digging into what are you really passionate about and what do you really want to sound like from an earlier age? I feel, I feel like that's happening. And, and the, the music industrial complex, uh, maybe doesn't hold as much sway. It's not, it's not a monopoly anymore, you know? Yeah. I think it has less and less to offer. I mean, when there were gigs where you could play in a big band and you wanted that and you knew you were going to have work for a long time, well, great. You right. know, um, or whatever it is. So now you do have these people that play. They're so good. Put a chart in front of them. It's perfect. Um, the odd time signatures, it's great. Yes, they can improvise amazingly over changes within that very um, narrow, the narrow confines of that kind of improvisation. It's expert. Um, they can, the drummers can execute stuff with, with near perfect time, but what's not what i don't it's reached such a point it's it's um what do they call that technical exhaustion right right <laughs> where what what is what was really nifty when very few people could do it becomes not incredibly alluring when almost everybody can do it yeah and and that's why i say you know i mean i have people like hey you know i'll come and we'll play and you know and i just can't and, I, and they're amazing but i can't hire them for anything because they can play anything, but they can't really, they need to make that journey that of themselves. And they need to make that journey of figuring out what is special for them about music before, even though they can play circles around me, it doesn't have um, gravitas. I hate to use that. That's such a corny ass word. Yeah. And, and they don't have a real personal narrative. What they're doing doesn't have a real personal narrative, you right. know. Um, they don't one of my mean favorite, it. Yeah, I mean, look, one of my favorite musicians I play with is a guy named Curtis Folks. I don't know if you know Curtis. He's I don't. a great trom. He's a trombone player out of Brooklyn. He's probably. I had a band with him and Bobby Previtt that was really a. We had such a good time, but he's. I'm Curtis has got to be almost seventy at this point, and he's just one of my favorite musicians, and he's not. You know, yeah, he'll fuck up a few notes here and there and he'll do that. But it just makes it better. <laughs> it makes the narrative better. The music is better. I mean, you play a gig with Curtis in front of, you know, 200 young people and he takes a solo and he'll crack a few notes. and He'll do a few things and people are shitting their pants, <laughs> you know, because yeah. there's something 
happening there that that is that cannot be denied. Right. You know, um, and that's what I want to hear. I want to hear that kind of special, weird kind of thing that that happens. You right. know, that makes you go, "Oh, wow, okay, damn." Right. You right. Know? The stuff that people play that that make it feel like their their lives depend on it. Like, yeah, that's the stuff you got to find for yourself. Yeah, man, and 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 I just think it's also that when you talk about that musical industrial complex, you're also talking about something, of course, you know, uh, full disclosure, I didn't really go to music school. I went in Oakland, I went to Laney College, which was a community college. Mm -hmm. And they had great teachers. And I did learn like for about maybe a couple semesters, I did learn some theory, some just basic stuff that I really did need to learn. But I didn't go into one of the real music schools. I mean, luckily, I couldn't afford it, you know, Right. <laughs> um, and, and I didn't know how to get a scholarship. I didn't understand how those things worked. You mm-hmm. know, that was not within my reality, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and if I got one, I probably would have fucked it up anyway. So <laughs> wh- whatever, you know, but, um, you know, what I seem to see is it also tends to hew towards a very specific socioeconomic, um, background as well. Hmm. And most, most people have, uh, parents who have means who've worked, you know, professional careers. Um, and so they, I think project that reality onto their kids when they send them to these schools, Mm -hmm. but music doesn't work like the law or investment banking or, uh, you know, whatever it is, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. It's, it's like catching smoke, you know, and (laughs) you just gotta, you gotta go where the smoke is, you know, and hope some of it gets on you. Are there any uh, projects that you've been tackling during uh, the last couple months? Man, you know, I've just been trying to, um, again, man, just trying to, you know, this is the first time. I mean, I've been on the road for 30 years straight, right? Wow. Um, which means I'm a, basically, I'm going to, I tell people, and it's not far from the truth, really, I'm a driver. That's actually <laughs> what I do, you know? Yeah. It's, it's like being a catcher in baseball, you know, it's like you, yeah, you're going to get to hit a few times a game, but really, you know, you're, you're catching. That's what it's like. I drive, you know, (laughs) and I've driven millions of miles. Yeah. And, and at my age, I'm like, man, I've done this for 30 years. Uh, it's, it's tiring, you know, and this is the first time I've had in all that time that I've been off this much without having to drive. Wow. You know, without having the pressures of always having to perform. So I felt like what I did with my playing is I just like the kind of metaphorically like an old car. 
I just took it out on the lawn, put it up on blocks, took the whole fucking thing apart, put them on, put all the parts on a tarp. And now I'm kind of looking through parts going, that part is shit. Throw it away. <laughs> that part is good, but it needs to be fixed. Let's fix that part. Okay. Right. Et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, and I'm hoping in, you know, three or four months to be able to put the car back together again in some way, shape or form. Right. So, what, so I've been doing that kind of stuff. What what changes in uh, your music or your composition or just your approach uh, do you think are, are going to come about from from that uh, dismantling and, and reconstructing? I mean, I hope I come out playing a deeper groove, um, less playing less shit, and the shit that I do play has a little more heft to it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I also... You know, I'm a kind of an amateur drummer and I do it as a way to um, cross-reference what I play on my instrument. It's a really important part. And I hadn't had, haven't had drums in a couple months. So I've just been actually for the first time since I probably was a kid, I got one of those reflex practice pads. Yeah, you know? yeah. And I've been actually practicing getting my hands together, you know. So hopefully when I do get on the drums, it's not going to sound... The, the sound that I make on the drums. I can play some okay time, you know, but the sound is awful. It's just oh, I, I, I disagree. Hard to listen to. I disagree on both <laughs> counts. Like the time, ah! like the pocket is deep and the sound is great. Like you, yeah, you're, you're a drummer. You're not an amateur drummer. Uh, I, you're, I appreciate you're drummer. it, man. What are you working on on the pad? Um, just dude, single stroke and double stroke rolls hmm. um just trying at really slow temp- tempos too mm-hmm. like just trying because carter showed me a bunch of um you know here's the thing it helps be an amateur drummer when all your friends are the baddest drummers around right you know? right so i'll call them up i'm like man how do i how do i work on this you know carter's like hey man just, just do here's some exercises to do you know and Derek and phillips has that great background with the rudimentary uh, drumming right thing. so you know, he'll show me a few things and, and Mike Clark showed me some things, you know, mm-hmm. and, and uh, I just try to get everyone to, to show me a little bit. And, and um, you know, I'm just trying to get it to a point where it, it doesn't sound shitty, right. you know, because it's like when you're a musician and you know music, like, you know, I'll be playing my instrument and I'm like, OK, that's OK. That's, that's decent. You know, you listen to it back. It's like, all right, some of this is better than I thought. Others not as good. When I'm playing drums, I'm like, I'm the man. Check this shit out. <laughs> and then I hear it back, you know, because it's really hard and it's not your instrument. You're, you're playing, you hear it back. You're like, actually, it kind of sucks, dude. Yeah. <laughs> it's not as grooving as you thought it was. Yep. And it's the same with singing. Like, I think like all musicians should be able to sing, you know, you sing a little bit and you hear it, but you think you're singing great. You hear it back. And I have a good ear, you know, I hear it back. I'm like, damn, you're not a singer, bro. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Nope. Keep at it. Well, if, if I could suggest, um, get, get into some of the flam stuff on, okay. the, on that pad. Um, I've, I've just like fallen in love with, with flam stuff over the last couple years because, um, I feel like everything, everything we do on the drums is either an accent or a tap, right? Mm. Like if you, if the way I boil it down in my head, like it's either an accent or a tap and the flams, just get your hands moving and talking to each other in a constant way. It's not, it's, it's like, it's like what you talked about, uh, independence versus interdependence. Um, you know, the flams, flams make your hands work together to create a thing in a way that I think other, other rudiments don't. And there's, you know, they, they work other vocabulary and other motion or whatever, but I've really been digging just like putting my hands through, 
flam stuff to to really get them talking to each other and really you know isolate some motions and just figure out the space between notes um and from just from a warm-up perspective you know if i've got four minutes to warm up then doing a bunch of flam stuff is like both hands moving all the time you know right um so So other than like just the basic kind of flam flam the swiss triplets the right flam taps flam accents yeah i mean those those are they're part of the you know i mean i i probably can i can do the triplets okay and but i kind of don't want to move from that until i until they don't sound terrible right but i should do you think i should be uh doing more than should i go through the whole rudiment thing and try to do all of them um, yeah, for sure. Um, but there's also, you can, you can just like make up exercises that use flams. Like you can take something that you're already comfortable with and, and just figure out some ways to throw flams into it. Um, like, you know, paradiddles, you can just take paradiddles and, uh, say, okay, I'm just going to play a flam on every downbeat. Um, and okay. w- one I do all the time is, is moving the flam from the, the one to the E to the and to the, uh, but still maintaining the underlying paradiddle sticking. Um, another cool one is, you know, Mike Johnston or Mike Johnson. I, I know of him. Yeah. yeah. I can yeah. never remember if it's Johnson or Johnston, but you know, Mike's lessons guy. Um, yeah. He put up this cool exercise where like, you know, the, the, the Coscara pattern. Um, yeah. He, he would play the Coscara pattern with his, you know, with one hand and fill in the rest of the 16th notes on the other hand which in itself is a cool little warm up and you switch it yeah. from, you know, right lead to left lead. But I, uh, I just put like flams on, I took his sticking and I put flams on all the accents and then like kept the flams in the same place or kept the sticking the same, but move the flams around. Um, so yeah, just like adding flams wow. to stuff, uh, you know, really gets your, gets your hands talking to each other and not in a way that's like choppy. I don't use it to, to like build up muscle and build up speed and whatever. It's just like for fluidity and flexibility and, and just that, that constant dialogue between accents and taps and how you've got to fill up space in between them to make it sound and feel smooth. Okay. All right. I got my work cut out for me, man. It's going to (laughs) be, it's going to be four or five years. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. I'll, I'll send you, I'll send you a thing. Oh, I would love that. Yeah, yeah, any information, I'm pretty happy to try. Cool. Attempt at least. Right, right on. How's it going in Atlanta? Have you just been camped out like everybody else? Yeah, yeah. I uh, have finally gotten the opportunity to get my home tracking situation started. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, and it's not it's not together really by any means, but uh, just started started the journey. <laughs> it's such a bitch, man. I mean, I'm I'm like really deep into the old dog new trick territory right now yeah and i'm really trying i set up a patreon i'm starting to make videos for them i got a i mean this shit is big i got a fucking tripod and yeah i'm getting my i have a friend at universal audio and he gave me a deal on a apollo twin Mm -hmm. you know and I'm going to have to learn how to use Luna. I mean, I don't even know how to use Pro Tools or Logic or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, I I got into Logic like two months ago. I don't know if they're still doing it, but Logic, uh, do you have Logic already? I don't know. They're doing 90-day free trials. Wow. Yeah. And I don't know if they're still doing it, but I'm on day like 62 or something. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I, I, you know, I got Logic. I'm learning about that. I got this... Uh, 
um, Focusrite Scarlet interface. Um, yeah. And just, you know, borrowed, borrowed some mics and, and just getting the process going. So I've had, you know, the time to get that going. I'm teaching Skype lessons. Um, there's, you know, and there's always podcast stuff to do, but, uh, yeah. but yeah, Atlanta is, uh, you know, it's a beautiful, I haven't started, I haven't, it's a beautiful, uh, vibrant music scene that is just dormant like everywhere else right now. So yeah, trying to ride yeah, it out. It's, it sucks, man. Yeah. I know. I think my feeling is from being a touring musician for so long is that my feeling is, is that touring is going to be over for a couple years. I think and, it is. But gigs will be back, meaning local gigs will be back. And big cities like New York, Chicago, L.A., those places are going to start getting – they're going to – there's going to be an exodus of people from those places to smaller cities, more affordable places. I think you're right. I think it was already underway, but this is going to accelerate it a lot. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm hoping, uh, that, you know, obviously none of us would have chosen this, I think, but, but I'm hoping it'll kind of refocus musicians and listeners on more local personal, uh, you know, music experiences. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I, I hope so. And I think it'll be nice. It'll be like a nice ground up kind of reimagining of how, musicians and interact with the community and i'm really hoping that it'll just end up being like it was back in the day you know where, yeah i mean dude i when it, i mean i live in greensboro north carolina now so there's not I, I would be able to play here raleigh durham charlotte roanoke you know get some gigs going there but it like it's not going to be like it was like in the bay area where like man there were so many gigs. I had more gigs than I know what to knew what to do with. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and and local gigs. And when I started touring, I took a hit. Right. You know. And so I'd love to get back to that again, man. Because the touring thing is like, man. Last tour of Europe, I got stuck in Italy. I almost didn't get home. <laughs> oh fuck. And the money's not great. The money is great for like ten people, and I'm right. not one of those ten people. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, the margins are thin, man. It's like running a restaurant. Like even the, yeah. you know, even the, the most prestigious, most, uh, you know, brass ass restaurants, like their profit margin is still <laughs> pretty thin, pretty like, low, pretty thin. Um, yeah. and like you said, for maybe 10 of them, they're like raking it in, but for the rest Absolutely. of them, they're paying payroll and buying ingredients and like, it's all out the door and the same with tour. Nothing. Yep. Yeah. It's the same damn thing, man. Nothing. You ain't getting the damn thing. Amen, <laughs> brother. Amen. Yeah. Well, Charlie, man, it was great talking to you. I hope we I hope we get to be in the same room together someday. <laughs> me too, man. Thank you so much for having me. This was a total pleasure, man. Right on. Right on. Thanks for doing it. You got it, baby. All the best. Thanks to Charlie for that talk. I highly recommend you check out his music, his social media, his Patreon. All his platforms are easy to find, and there's great stuff to see and hear on all of them. Next week, we'll be bringing you an encore presentation of an episode from 2017 we called Black Drummers of Nashville. Matthew Krauss hosted a roundtable discussion with Keo Stroud, Hubert Payne, Marcus Finney, Jeremy Robertson, and Derek Phillips about their experiences as black musicians in a scene driven by mostly white artists and audiences. 
The conversation they had is just as relevant today as it was three years ago, maybe even more so. And now that more ears are willing to listen, we feel it's important for black perspectives to be lifted up and heard. And this is one of the ways we can use this platform to do that. So please check that out next week. And until then, stay safe and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.